From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Kay Massey hosting this week with my longtime co-hosts, colleagues, friends, and collaborators, Audie Weiner and Eric Bradlow. Shane Jensen is out this week doing Shane Jensen things. He will be back. Some combination of us are here almost every week of the year. And we have been for coming up on 10 years, coming up on 10-year anniversary. In fact, heads up, we don't know what we're going to do with it yet, but we're going to record an hour-long fireside chat of sorts with all four co-hosts reflecting on what we've learned over the last 10 years. I do think we've learned a few things and we'll share that out in some form or fashion. You can follow us on Twitter, probably the best way to do it, easiest way to do it, at WMoneyBall is our handle on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. We follow our guests. We tweet about the world of sports and sports analytics. We love to hear from you. We'll take your praise, of course. We'll also take your suggestions and criticism. Always open to it. Let us know what you think. We have uh, a usual format today. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon, as we usually do. The show will go up on Wednesday morning, be replayed a few times on SiriusXM over the course of the week. We'll get the podcast up on Wednesday morning as well. Second half of the show, longtime friend of the show, Ron Yurko. Ron is a professor over at Carnegie Mellon. We met him first as a young grad student, as a matter of fact, and he's grown into a professor. He is one of the leaders in uh, their sports analytics efforts which is one of the leaders in the world of sports analytics. Carnegie Mellon does a terrific job. They have put people into lots of teams. They have a great network, and they're thoughtful, wonderful people. Talked some with Ron, especially on football analytics in the second half of the show. Between now and then, fellas, got a short little run, but we mostly want to talk baseball. Before we get to baseball, as baseball warms up, we got to crack it open and start looking at what it looks like. Eric's got something on basketball. That what, I've, what I've heard from him, it's a little surprising. What do you got, Eric? Well, just because, you know, the All-Star game just happened, so we're at the halfway point of the season, or a little past, which means we're starting to project towards the playoffs. I went on to basketballreference.com, which reasonable place, and they've got predictions for final win totals and all of that. Then they also have a projection for the playoffs, and there's one number that stood out at me. So, Avi, I don't know if you looked at this, but do not for a second if you haven't. What is the highest you would give any team? to be to win the NBA finals. Remember, the way it works this is point that season. six teams make the playoffs, four others make what's called the playoff round. And so if, let's think of it as 16 teams make it. Eight from each conference eventually make it. So we're at 16. What's the Adi, what's the highest probability you would give any team to win the NBA finals? Well, it's a tilted yeah, I can't imagine it be more than 15%. Yeah. Well, right now it has the Boston Celtics at 47.6% to win the NBA finals. And I'm like, how is that possible? Like, even if they make the finals, we could debate whether they have a 47.6% chance. Let's suppose they play the Denver Nuggets, the defending champions. We could debate whether they have a chance to win that. But that number seems to me now, Adi, by the way, just so you know. Who says that line? This is basketballreference.com. And what is the, what do the books say? Vegas. Yeah, the books nice have question. them at last time I looked this morning, it was at about plus two thirty. Plus two thirty. Okay. So that's still around twenty five percent, maybe twenty somewhere between twenty five well, to thirty percent, right? Yeah, it's uh, it's about thirty. It's about thirty percent. That's with the bump up with the vig. So without it, it's around about. 25, 26%. Yeah. And by the way, just so you know, your prediction of 15%, the second highest team, which we could debate, there's basically the Minnesota Timberwolves are at 15%. The one I just don't get, and maybe again, they have their own models. The Denver Nuggets, who are the defending champs, who are only three games back in the West, they have at 1.5% to win the finals. So, but either way, the number that stuck out of me, we want to talk baseball. I can't see any legitimate mathematical model that has any one team at almost 50% to win the finals. It just doesn't make sense. You might ask, what do you think the upper limit of the probability of well, that's what I asked Adi. I said, what's the highest you would give any team? But Eric, I'm saying in the finals, like for the final two teams, what's the upper limit you think that oh. should that probably happens here over the last 20 years, what's been the upper limit of the prob- the probability that the favored team would win. I mean, you've probably had some in the seventies. I'd say I, I, I can't imagine it being I, my upper limit would be, and I'm sure this is way above anybody else's two thirds. Yeah, I mean that. It may, you, then you might ask, what's the what's the typical? 
Oh, the typical would be 55-45. Yeah, I, I agree with that. So, I mean, that's your starting place, and you've got to play three rounds to get there. So it's really it's really hard to understand. Um, well, they do speaking have a of just so you of, know, just quickly, just so you know, they do have a probability of winning the conference at 66%. So if you just do the math, that means they think they have a 70-plus percent to defeat whoever they're going to play in the NBA Finals, which mm-hmm. I think is just – that's aggressively high. Oh, 65% to win the conference is high. But seventy plus percent to win the finals is aggressively high. They've got a sim with without enough uncertainty in it. That's the <laughs> there you go. Um, okay, fellas, talk about forecast. Let's look at Major League Baseball. We are still some time away. What a, a, a month anyway, a month plus on on actual games. But people are coming out with their forecasts. It's always interesting to look at what kind of regression we see. We see teams every year, almost every year clear 100 wins but you don't forecast over 100 wins that's 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 too extreme so well, what do we see crazy. when you scan when you scan fan graphs or whoever you're scanning for what this baseball season is supposed to look like especially compared to last what jumps out to you so it's interesting because like fan graphs doesn't put anybody higher than i think 97 97 uh, yep i think atlanta and la are there have them right around 97 but i've seen other forecasts by not unreasonable people at, at the LA Dodgers, well over a hundred. So that's just oh, where oh, the trend wow. goes. Now, Fangraphs are sort of super shrinkers. I would call that, uh, meaning they they regress strongly to the mean. I remember that a couple well, of years back, um, they were ag- more aggressive on shrinking back to the mean when the Yankees had that ridiculous start. Remember that, Eric? That was so great. Uh, I remember. They went like we saw the same thing last year with the Orioles. Was- they, they 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 just would not move on the Orioles last year. And they didn't move on the on the Rays also last year. They we had that incredible start, and they just and they were smack on with the with the Rays the rest of the season. With their it's a little bit that's a we we kind of prefer that era, right? You know, they say this thing in golf. Eric will know it from his days on the golf course. There's the there's the rookie side of the cup, and then there's the pro side of the cup. So yeah, uh, not rookie, novice, amateur. The amateur side of the cup is is to miss the cup low. Like you you don't put enough you don't read enough break into the putt, and so you amateurs more reliably miss it low and i think the amateur the forecasting era is to over too extreme of a forecast and so i kind of admire Fangraph's aggressive shrinking even though we think it's too much in places yeah what i just noticed also and i this is what i put in some of our notes a couple things stuck out at me first of all not all teams are predicted to mean revert now there could be lots of reasons for that let me say a couple a couple could be, well, mean revert to what? So first, the question is, Adi, let me ask you, just, you know, I don't know if this is a series of multiple choice questions, Adi, but would you yeah. do, do you mean revert every team to 81? Or do you mean revert teams to what you think their true strength is, however you're going to estimate that? And last year is just a noisy measure of that. And if it is, what would you shrink to other than to 81? Well, when you say shrink, so the, the standard way of doing this would be looking at year-to-year win-loss ratio, winning percentages, and just calculate the correlation. So that would be a simple, simple way to do this. Take all the teams, have 30 rows, two variables, last year, the year before, and then repeat that for many seasons as much as you like. And that'll and, tell you the amount of shrinkage. And that, and the, and the, the, global, the global average. The global average. Yeah, it's global. You would shrink to the global average. The correlation will probably be something. I don't know exactly what it is, but I guess it's around 0.6 or so. That would have um, been my guess. 0.5, 0.6. If it's 0.5, then that's an easy one. It's half a half, right? So if it's 0.5, you would you 81 times a half plus last year's win percentage times a half, you know, or, or last year's wins times a half, and th- that's it. If it's 0.6, then you would then you would do more for for last year and less shrinkage towards the uh, towards the mean. No, but let's You're be clear. Under that formula, yeah, everyone's projection is going to be a linear combination of 81 and last year's, which means it's going to be within that convex hull, within those two numbers. That's right. And we look at fan graphs here, and there's lots of teams that are actually that are above the mean that are projected even higher above the mean. So how would you explain that? So okay, so there's a, there's a lot of other things. So last year they might re, they might not use winning percentage; they might use Pythagoras or some sort of estimate of what what wins you deserved. Not exactly. A better forecaster, right? In other words, some teams will outperform their their runs allowed, runs scored formula for whatever one you want to use, and then you would say, you know, you won 100 games, but we only think you deserve to win 91. 
And so, and conversely, you have a team that will have won 91 games and we actually thought they overplayed. And so that's where you'll get some of these changes where you don't actually look at wins because wins is a noisy variable. You look at an underlying strength parameter that's still a, a historical value. It's what you did last year, but it's more stable and more predictive and therefore will shrink differently and shrink to something else. Adi, real quickly, uh, if, you were, if you were playing with Pythagoras wins, how much less regression do you think you would have in those forecasts? How much less shrinkage do you think? Because a lot of the shrinkage is exactly that because you have actual wins, not Pythagoras wins. And so you're honoring right. in some sense that they're not fully well, as right. expected. So Pythagoras predicts, uh, has a stronger correlation year to year. That's, that's what you're I'm asking, I'm asking if you speculated. I think it's probably around you speculated that the, the correlation between actual wins was something like 0. 0.6 or 0. 0.65. You think the correlation of Pythagoras wins would be higher. what? It's higher, probably by 0.7. But how much? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure we're getting it right about the. I think it may be 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6 for actual wins, probably 0. 0.6, 0. 0.7 for Pythagoras. Yeah, the ones that stuck out, I mean, I love this idea of shrinking to the, I'll call it, I'll use them quotes, true wins, the expected wins or the Pythagoras wins. I love that idea. The, the couple that stuck out at me is the Orioles won 101 games last year, and now they're predicted for 85. That just stuck out at me. So what is the model by which it must be like just using your math, Adi, like they really they won 101, but they really won like 90 last year. And we're going to shrink that 90 back about halfway towards 81. But they far exceeded what their actual strength was. So you might ask, I mean, so that's basically what a formulaic approach would do. You'd say you, you won 104. We don't think you deserve that. We're going to use we're going to use 92 and we're going to shrink that back to 81. Bam. Um, that produces a massive, much larger, much larger regression to the mean. Um, so but there are ways, reasons why not to do that. So there are tr teams that have traditionally outperformed their their Pythagorean. Um, the Yankees did it forever, and that was always attributed to one Mario player, Rivera, right? Because right. he just, you know, they didn't blow leads, and so they won close games with much more frequency than are, is predicted by just the Poisson model, which, by the way, is from which the the Pythagorean formula can be derived. It's it, just for our listeners want to, if you want to readily approximate it, it's so simple. Just take runs scored minus runs allowed divided by the sum of runs scored and runs allowed. And that's your your extra winning percentage over a half. In baseball, it works beautifully. Um, so it's a very simple formula. Um, and so that's what you were doing. And so sometimes you say, wow, that kind of overperformance deserves a little bit of special attention. But the converse to that is the special pleaders, the special attention. It doesn't seem to be much solid evidence that that works. <laughs> You know, but converse, very small effect size, not much data. How am I supposed to prove something that small? Mm -hmm. I guess the other guys, thing there are, of course, other factors like change in rosters are a factor. Oh, yeah. I mean, one reason you might like the Dodgers so much is that they added show high. But 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 also I'm curious, do you know anything about a team like the Astros? who had a very good season last year, 18 games above 500, and yet are showing, according to Fangraphs, no regression whatsoever. So that's a great performance for the average team. You'd expect to shrink it pretty dramatically, but they're not shrunk at all. The forecast is for them to have essentially the same number of wins, 90-91. Why would that be? It was setting aside that fact that they might have underperformed their Pythagorean wins. So what other factors would keep you from shrinking a team like that? Changing well, roster is changing kind of the opposite. Um, probably the only one um oh, you could also think that some of your individual players have underperformed in the previous year yeah right or they're on the arc they're a development arc that they're gonna be better this year yeah, than and, also, do you get any sense about whether this is ever done by simulation so maybe another theory would be the teams in their division who they play have gotten a lot weaker yeah and there's, you know, that that can boost you up three, four, five more wins very easily. So maybe you would know, uh, Cade, are any of these projections, do they tend to be done in aggregate or do they tend to literally simulate out seasons and then take averages? Well, I, I know the answer to that with Fangraphs. Oh, okay. Fangraphs does a um, a simulation based on the season. Okay. I don't know how the other ones work, though. Well, a weaker division would help. Yeah. Well, that's... That that's what you would want for sure. And so it's going to reflect that. And I mean, the AL East, I mean, you guys, the, the, maybe that's, 
mean, they show the Orioles coming down, but the Yankees, you know, the Yankees, your team, you've, you've abstained admirably so far. Your team was thought to underperform last year, and that's reflected in these forecasts for next year. They won 82 last year, just above 500, and they're forecasted at 89. What do you all think about that? Yankees, of course. Well, I think they underperformed last year. Um, they had uh, Aaron Judge out for about a third of the season. What, is that what it was? Uh, I think injuries are going to be a big part of this. And they story. added Juan Soto, one of the top two hitters in the league. I mean, this is a young guy on the rise, has been amazing. I mean, you're projecting probably five to six war for him alone um, over what was replaced and which was shit. So I think just the recovery of Aaron Judge and Juan Soto by themselves adds a bunch of performance. Um, so you know, obviously wouldn't rate them higher than that. They have so many holes. Um, usually the Yankees come in around 92 as the forecast. So 89 is still lower than what they've been previous, previous years. I think the other thing that's interesting, Adi, is um, they're, they're predicted to turn around their run differential by over 100 runs, which, as you yeah. know, is a lot. Like they were actually negative 25 last year and they're projected according to Fangrass at plus 79. That's 104 differential. That's a huge differential from year to year. I would be, put this way, I, I didn't even notice the Yankees, Kate, to be honest with you, but now that you look at it, I think 89 is, I, I hope. How about that? I'll take 89. If you give me 89 for the Yankees right now and a wild card spot, because I won't win the division by far. You give me 89 right now, I'd take it. Well, that's take interesting. I, I, I wouldn't take it, but but uh, I'm still not happy about it. I'll take I'm it. I'm not accustomed to y'all being so spe- pessimistic, I suppose. Hey, by the way, I've just run real quickly the projected wins on fan graphs for all 30 teams correlated to l- last year's win total. What do you think it is? Oh, you ran the correlation between this year's? Last year's actual wins and this year's predicted wins. Yes. Oh, I what, yes. pretty damn high. I guess it's over around 0.9. I'm going to guess 0.4 to No, 0.5. you just said they were aggressive shrinkers. Why are you 0.4? guessing 0.9? No, 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 no. The correlation should be – I'm not saying – awesome. No, 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 no. But they're going to be the keep the same order, right? So there's going to be a constant, right? So the, the teams that did great last year are more or less. They'll just be- tilt the line. It won't, it'll it's just tilt it. The ranks. It's not going to change the ranks very much. I think it is. I, I think just their predictions so have done. other things in there. I'm guessing 0. 0.4. It's 0. 0.8. It's 0. No, 0.8. It's it's so, so the, the 0.8, it's the reason why it's 0.1 is because of the change of rosters and change in, in seasons. Otherwise it would be one. Right. If you just used, if my forecast last year, if my forecast was just point R times point six or R times last year's win, then the correlation would be one. Yeah. Well, you have two. Also, you're pointing out, Adi, you have two sequences that aren't the monotone or the ordering's not changing by shrinkage. If that, if it's what you're saying, it has to be other factors that disturb that. That's right. And so the fact that it's point eight means that other factors for fan graphs like the like the. Pythagorean, like the change in rosters, like the change in schedules, actually have a bit of an impact. They're not, it's not nothing. Good, good, good. All right, guys. Well, that's what we have time for this first half. The, if nothing else, I learned that my Yankee friends are not optimistic going into the season, which is just a thing I'm going to take a while to get my head around. But we've got more baseball in the weeks to come, and we have a little bit of football and just some general statistical analysis, reasoning in the second half of the show with our guest, Ron Yurko. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the second half of this week's Wharton Moneyball. This is Cade Massey hosting with my colleagues and friends from the first half of the show, Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow. And this being the second half of the show, we typically bring a guest in. We do have a guest this week, Delighted. To have back on the show for the first time in a while, too long, frankly. Ron Yurko, longtime listeners will remember Ron. Those dabbling in the world of sports analytics, no doubt know Ron. He is at Carnegie Mellon, been at Carnegie Mellon for a long time. He is a teaching assistant professor there now. He did his PhD there. Various teams tried to lure him into the dirty professional world of sports. He abstained. He is somehow holding himself pure at Carnegie Mellon. He's part of the leadership team there that is one of the real pillars in the sports analytics community. They run a conference every fall that's fantastic. They run a summer camp for high school research kids. 
Um, really one of the great institutions pushing things forward in sports analytics. And Ron is one of the leaders there, has been for a while since some ridiculous age, like, I don't know, 13 or something. He wandered on the Carnegie Mellon campus and started leading these sports analytics efforts. Ron, good to see you, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. No, I, unfortunately, not since I was 13. I mean, I'm from Pittsburgh, from the area. So I always was connected in a way, but uh, not I'm not that young. Not that young. He's, he's, he's at the ripe old age of 30 now. But Ron's been doing the thing for a while, and we thought, let's just find out what Ron, Ron's thinking about. He's one of these guys where you'll kind of be interested in whatever he's thinking about. He's that broad and deep in the world of sports analytics. Ron, you told us ahead of time that something on your mind right now is that you advised two of the teams that ultimately made the finals for the big data bowl. So we're talking about NFL's competition they do it every year this is what like the fifth year maybe fifth year sixth year pushing the finals are held in indianapolis during combine week and it sounds like two carnegie mellon teams have made it in and that you're advising those two teams that's pretty exciting can you give oh, us yeah, i'm ecstatic about that yeah, it's just, I mean, uh... this thing is there's so much competition now right this is this is a this has been one of the real victories in sports analytics in the last few years what lopez and the nfl have done and I mean, kids have moved from these competitions into teams all over the place. Ideas are in television production all over the place. I mean, it's really been a win. Tell us a little bit about, and we have to keep it kind of thumbnail. We could do the whole show on either one of these, but just in, in a sketch, what did your teams do? What was the what was the mandate this year, the scope? And then what did your two teams do? Not your teams, yeah, so the teams you advised. The theme this year was tackling. And that's, that's a very broad topic. Uh, and so you, you saw a number of different uh, projects that are out there where maybe groups were trying to attempt to predict who might tackle uh, or where might a tackle take place. Uh, my two groups actually took a very different route. We went for, let's think kind of creatively out of the box. And we had a one group of master students in our program where they decided to partner with CMU football coaches. And one of the great things that Lopez uh, added recently in the Big Data Bowl was this coaching track, where the idea is bring data scientists, statisticians together with football coaches and have something that's really delivering on a concept, football terminology, something that hopefully coaches can get a takeaway from. And this group, what they worked on was the notion of setting the edge, where mm -hmm. Um, the moment where the defender has effectively established like the border that the running back will see in a sense, and then have to change their direction, cut back and whatever movement that you can imagine is going to drop their velocity or you know, the speed at which they're moving. It's going to hopefully lead to a more successful play from the defensive point of view. And what, it was fantastic where the coach drew on his whiteboard, these sort of angles of types of runs and these cutback motions. And we saw this, and the students realize we can actually quantify like this angle, this change in the direction and see when is this greatest change in the direction happening over the course of runs. Hey, you can see that. Okay. A connection of football understanding, this concept, this key thing of the role of a player setting the edge and how, if it happens earlier in the play, it leads to notably like a more successful defensive play. And we, you can look at that, like expected points added, perspective for football or just even yards yards gain yards lost yeah so ron let me ask you is it is this you know a topic i was talking about to my mba students today is what one might call feature engineering meaning we have some maybe continuous or we have some long vector of observations and we're going to summarize that and see what helps predict some business outcome in the case of my class do you view this any differently than like a standard feature engineering problem? Like maybe it's the angle. Maybe it's when it happened. Like earlier is better than later. Maybe it's how far it is away from the pocket. So do you view this differently than, you know, whether it's a machine learning model or whatever the students are doing, but it's a feature engineering problem? I, I, I love what you bring up there because this is entirely just careful feature engineering. All right. And this is also what, what we did in this other project of looking at, uh, change in momentum for the ball carrier. We decided really for these two projects to try to be as model free as possible, where I'm just saying now we have this NFL tracking data. It's incredibly rich and complex. What are we actually observing with this? You think in baseball, I, I think about baseball analogies all the time because uh, that's, that's what I played growing up. I never played football. So I always think in baseball terms. 
But like baseball, exit velocity, launch angle, those are two, they're common now. Baseball broadcasts, baseball discussions, those are not models. Those are effectively smooth quantities measurements from the technology that we have. And so we, in football, we have this rich tracking data and I'm guilty of this and others are definitely guilty of this as well, diving into like throwing in machine learning models, trying to predict this and that. But what are the actual measurable features that we can see, that we can compute, whether it be changes in the angle of movement or just noting ball carriers have momentum towards the target end zone? How are those observed things changing? And those are things that then can get studied via statistical models, understanding yeah, this sources is exactly, of variation. Just, just quickly, just to add on, and I know Adi wants to jump in, this is exactly what I talked about. I was talking about the, in my case, the observable data was clickstream data, which is you have this extraordinarily rich clickstream data. And the question is, what are the observables? Forget the model yet. Just what are the observables that are likely to provide information about some outcome of interest? So it's 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 really, and I view it as an identical problem. So let me jump in and make step back even further. You went from you went from football to baseball, and you were talking about marketing. I'll, I'll move move further. In you you have two really two two measurements that you're looking at. One what we would call in statistics the X space, the the features. Yep. And then you have the, the Y space, which is the thing that you ultimately care about. So in the football problem, it would be the Y would be, well, what happened was did, did you tackle him or you didn't tackle him? Um, something that, that actually matters to the football game. The X are all the observables, the, the, the starting with the tracking. And what you're talking about feature engineering is taking this big, giant X matrix of, of tracking information and creating variables. What I'm, what's interesting about what you described, Ron, the momentum stuff, and we actually had a team of undergraduates who are doing something. When I saw your project, I'm like, that's exactly what these, this team was trying to do. They never actually finished. Um, and uh, that doesn't have anything to do with the why. You build it just looking at the, at the tracking data without actually looking at a football problem, what you would, what you would call it, like digitackle. And then ultimately, the idea is you create these features, and then without looking at the, at the why, vector and then you figure out what the weights are and and what can best predict the why and that's what you would call that's often what's done in in like in in the business world and the real issue is should you and this is the open problem do you build the features independently of the why or do you build them simultaneously Adi just asked my question so I'm interested <laughs> in this. and then by the way this is exactly the question an MBA student a sophisticated one asked me in class today so I'm interested in Ron's answer I'm gonna too. I'm gonna I'm gonna ground it briefly so that Ron can answer it in concrete terms to make sure our audience is with us let's stay with your your setting the edge task you got the the first team that's working with the Carnegie Mellon coaches they want to understand setting the edge and so you're building all these features to help you analyze that. What is the why in that situation? What is the outcome variable that you care about? And the guys are asking, when do you start bringing that in and considering that as you build the, the features, the X's? Yeah, so th this is an excellent question because we actually had a meeting earlier today with the CMU football coaches in preparation for next week. And part of the reason why it's beneficial to maybe not consider what the outcome could be of a play of like the yards gained or expected points out, pick, pick whatever is your favorite outcome-based measurement is if you still want to measure the role of the player in, for instance, this edge setting where that player could have done their job correctly in establishing this boundary where they are close enough, they get close enough to the ball carrier. But if the ball carrier cuts back inside, and the interior defenders fail to do their job, the outcome can still be, oh, very positive for the offense. And I don't want to just say, oh, based on the outcome alone, that this defender did a poor job. And I think that's, that's the challenge of the tracking data. And that's the benefit of it, is we can try to isolate when people are doing their job correctly. And even if someone else, you know, it's a complex sport, 22 players on the field, someone else failed, we're not going to penalize them by based on hopefully was like a peripheral measure. You know, I think of some examples of a corner covering a wide receiver. Uh, many years ago, you would have seen like Julio Jones make an amazing one-handed catch where he's nearly out of bounds. He has a shutdown corner on him. And the corner did their job, 
but the receiver just did a better job. I'm not going to say the corner did a bad job. The mm-hmm. wide receiver's a Hall of Famer, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that, So one way that we typically get around this um, is by not looking at the actual outcome, like we'd, we'd be yards on, on a play, for example. Yeah. But look at an instantaneous measure of expected yards. Now, I will say that sounds beautiful, right? Because now we can measure your impact and see whether you've changed the expected yards by what you did. And then if what the actual yards turned out to be really, really good for the offense, well, that's someone else's fault, right? And that sort of solves your problem. But it solves that problem by introducing another problem, which is that expected yards thing is really a bitch. <laughs> it's not yeah, so I, This was actually the fun idea with this, um, this momentum-based fractional tackle project. I brought up that was with a group of well, PhD just, students. Just, let's capture that name again: momentum-based fractional tackle project. So, the, yeah, fractional tackles. Because this idea was let's ignore. You're not helping our reputation as a community with the traditional decision makers. <laughs> can, we, well, can we come up with some more macho names for these projects? <laughs> I, I like the sound of fractional tackle. I'm not going to lie. But the idea here was the tackle stat itself is just a flawed statistic. So we decided let's ignore that entirely and look at the ball carrier's momentum towards the target end zone and see at what moments of time is that getting reduced. And there could be defenders contributing to maybe they get designated by missed tackles and charting data. But those missed tackles might cause a ball carrier to have to change their direction, slow down their momentum towards the end zone. So they might deserve some credit of a defensive performance. And to see that actually what we did, I think it was like 25% of the the plays that we observed, uh, there was a person that did not get either the tackle or the assist that we credited as having the, the majority of the momentum lost. And these were primarily defensive linemen, guys that were up front, the big guys up front that don't really have recorded statistics in the basic way of just denoting tackles and assists. But we could take advantage of a measurable quantity from the tracking data, a ball carrier momentum, and you can see where it's actually getting reduced. Real quickly, clarification, that's fascinating, is, is an example of that a lineman maybe even holding his position while offense is trying to block him or maybe even pushing back. So the the running back might never even touch the lineman, but if he's interfering through the guy who's trying to block him or some other guy, he's reducing that running back's momentum. Is that yeah, well, yeah. So what we did to, to try to pinpoint on this is we defined like a, a distance-based window yeah. to say when a defender is within this window, what is the change in momentum for that ball carrier? And the nice thing with the distance-based approach is it's just a, it's kind of a rule-based heuristic where what we did was we base it on the tracking data where they provide these events of where was a first contact made. And it's not perfect, but we chose an appropriate distance such that we were capturing observed tackles that actually happened. Uh, and one could like modify this, but part of the appeal for me also was thinking about, you know, what types of, metrics can we compute that could be easy on a broadcast this fractional mm-hmm. tackle idea and maybe we change the name i kind of like the name <laughs> no I, I, it's I, still I, it's still easy to compute there's no model there's no xg boost random forest it's just there's an observed change and this is now a continuous metric for tackles rather than just that binary designation from before yeah, right Right, right, right. So, so when I was going to ask you, maybe it's a second order effect that I'm sure you guys thought about this, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Maybe a lot of the change in momentum is not due to the defensive player, but the inoptimality of the runner. So how do you take, in some sense, the runner could have continued their momentum, but chose the wrong gap or decided to go in a different direction or tried to reverse field, even though there was nothing open? Like, Or did you just ignore that? The runner, The runner's like... The runner is what the runner is. I think so. That's the next step to me is understanding how do we describe the variation in the change in momentum? Are there runner specific traits? Is it how the runner is entering this particular window, how the defenders are entering the particular window? That's, I think, the next step. That's the statistical question, right? Is how do we actually measure what describes that variation? or measure the impact of different factors? What's why the funny thing for me of this is this project. It's, it's not statistical in any way. 
It's just, we're looking at the data and we're just defining a new quantity based on the observed data, which to me is analogous to, you have these recordings of ball flight movements and you could get launch angle, you could get exit velocity. It's the same thing. What are peripheral measurements from that data? It, I, I feel you breaking free of your structural Bayesian models and you're, you're enjoying the freedom as you wander around unencumbered by the formality of it. And you got a gleam in your eye. I'm just looking at data, man. I'm just looking at, look at this velocity measure. Yeah, yeah. Let me just jump in on that because you analogize to the, the peripherals we measure in baseball, but you damn well know that those peripherals are extremely good summaries of what's actually going on. Right. And you can't yeah. deny it. You, that you got something that matters. And we know that a 29 degree, 110 foot, uh, 110 mile per hour ball is going out of the ballpark. And that's just, and then, and you can, you can gauge these things. Um, but with this other stuff, you gotta, you still have to ask yourself, okay, does it matter? And that's, that's where it's going to get hard. And so, I mean, I would argue that momentum matters. At least in this version of it, not maybe a uh, in the story. It matters, <laughs> and that's just, that's but, what it means. That's why it's good. It's a great first step, but you're going to have the yeah. next step has got to connect it to like a value. Well, but a couple of things here. One, it's going to be a longer go in a sport as more complicated as football is than baseball. So baseball is pretty straightforward. This is going to happen to this object. Nothing is going to get in its way as it flies <laughs> through the atmosphere. Ron's got a more complicated problem. But the other thing is you can approach it from a theoretical side as well. They didn't just wander onto the football field and grab a random hunk of data. They talked to the coaches and the coaches say, well, there's this concept in football called setting the edge. People talk about this all the time. I mean, defenses suffer an entire season because they don't have a guy who can set the edge. Announcers talk about it all the time. We, we know that they believe strongly in the importance of this thing. So let's see if we can operationalize it. And once we've operationalized it, does it help us actually understand it in new ways? I think it's absolutely fantastic. And I'm super, super, I, I love this concept in general, Ron, and, and not just with football data tracking, data, tracking data, any research project is like, look at your data. I mean, people are so quick to, you know, regress Y on X, but first just like, look at your data. It's often the case that you don't yet understand what's going on and you will never understand if you just run a simple linear model there and say, this is the coefficient. Yeah, and that, that's why, like, back to Eric's point of this feature engineering, to me, that's, that's where more of the work needs to be spent with this, this tracking data. Agreed. And it's just going to evolve as we get more and more, you know, iterations of the technology that record more aspects to it. You know, in baseball, basketball, they have posed data. You know, you can only imagine once we hopefully have that someday in football, what that could lead to understanding blocking or pass rushing in some kind or coverage, whatever it could be. Uh, but just knowing, let's look at the data. What are interesting aspects, features from that, that yes, they could get fed into that fancy machine learning technology, whatever you want to, you know, use downstream, but just focus on what we're looking at first what are the interesting features yeah that has been a big lesson for me over these years because i didn't i didn't think that way initially i've only recently just started to realize oh yeah i should step back and focus on the data before i go into the ml world keep preaching it keep preaching it ron eric ron do you get a sense that there's even a what i'll call whether you want to call it a sufficiency or a data compression story to be told here which is Maybe what's going to happen going forward with the just voluminous data that's being collected is that these massive petabytes or terabytes of data are just not going to be kept, but that people are going to summarize plays, not as simply as when, you know, Adi and I were kids and they were, you got the back of the baseball card and that was the scorecard. That's too much summarization. But do you get the sense that this could lead to, you know, you this momentum measure becomes one of the summary statistics that's tracked from plays and, we're, and our job is to create a bunch of summary statistics and those are what are going to be kept going forward maybe some i'll call it cloud-based warehouse keeps the real data but what teams who actually want to build models who have to take that large vector and turn it into a set of x's to shove into that xg boost model what they're going to be keeping is a set of summary stats i i agree with you 100% on this. I, I mean, I kind of have seen it a bit with teams where they struggle to maintain the large amounts of tracking data uh, where some maybe external partner of some kind could be the ones that do that engineering for them. 
and then supply to them the table of what is almost, yeah, the, you know, the sufficient statistics that are relevant uh, for working with the tracking data. I, I, I mean, that, that's, that, that to me is where the work needs to focus on is building what are these summaries? What are the really important things that, because if you think about the ultimate goal of say player evaluation, if you just, you just use all sorts of raw tracking data, treat everything as images, video, et cetera, and use your favorite uh, convolutional neural network or whatever deep learning approach you want to take, it's going to be really hard to do what's effectively an inference task. What is the effect of this player on the play? Right. That's, that's really what I care about. So if I want to understand that, I kind of want to think about how do I break that down into different traits, different aspects and creating the appropriate features that capture those aspects of the game can help us get to that point uh, versus if I only just sort of blindly engineer some, some deep learning model to predict some outcome, it's going to be much harder to get to that layer of doing appropriate inference. Maybe just I think one of the things on, is there any reason this couldn't be applied to the offensive side of the ball? Why can't offensive players yeah. actually get a fractional yardage associated I, with I, that? I, that's actually one of the things I've been thinking about was part of the inspiration for this uh, was this notion of what's an angry run in football where a running back who, and you see this with these momentum curves, there will be a running back that hits a peak momentum, loses it, and then recovers more momentum. It's like a second life or a third life. And Christian McCaffrey and the example data had a number of these, what I'm calling like two life, three life runs, where he loses momentum, recovers it, loses momentum, recovers it. And that's going to vary by player, but I, I, that's something I want to look at more is from an offensive viewpoint, how many of these running backs can sustain and effectively start a new run over again? Well, let's get let's get crazy here, Ron. Why not, you know, the term the second jump in basketball, the rebounder who can get off the floor the second time. How about in tennis, someone that doesn't get trapped in the corners? Maybe this momentum argument and this, you know, second, third momentum, maybe it's not that unique to football. And maybe it should be something we should think about more broadly as a capability of an athlete. Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. The um I will say, you know, I, I probably spend more of my time just thinking about football and a little bit baseball. So it'll be harder to think about like the analogy in other sports. But I, I, I think you're right on the idea of, you know, if there's other types of information we could be tracking uh, where maybe it is something like, you know, Djokovic and his, his movement profile during matches and how maybe it looks like, okay, his lateral speed is decreasing, but then it goes back up again later on in the match, but others don't have that ability. I mean, that could be a way of quantifying what is just the inherent athletic trait difference between them on the, on the, on the court or on the field in football. One of the neat things that this conversation strikes me is that it is an opportunity for anybody to dive in and do something, but it's, it's daunting in one sense that we're never, we're not going to have a unified model of football for a long time, but the field is completely open for diving in and carving out a niche, some some particular aspect of the game, designing those features, playing with that one little corner, anybody can jump in and do that. And that's what these contests have been, but it's um, it's egalitarian. It's democratic in a very cool it, way. I think, yeah, big credit goes to Mike Lopez and making this type of thing possible where, I mean, I wouldn't even thought of this momentum fractional tackle idea if he didn't have this competition where he had this open-ended tackling theme. Like I w- I'm not right. just sitting around every day thinking about this, right? It's, okay, right. there's this theme. What's a way to go about this theme that's a little bit different than just, you know, predicting who's going to make a tackle and where? The, uh, right. Think about things creatively. But, I mean, even at, the, at a meta level, consider how humble it is of Michael and the NFL to even do the competition in this way. And not just to invite all comers, but then they learn to ask a very open-ended question. Say, we don't even know exactly what might be most interesting within the world of tackling that you could imagine a, a competition presented in a very different way, narrowly prescribed. This is what we're interested in. And there's just a humility that taps into the wisdom of the crowd that they've learned. That's just and modeled, I think for the rest of us. And having something like this coaching track where you're encouraging collaboration between the technical people and the football folks, yeah. right? Yeah. The actual coaches, 
that's just going to lead to, it's just going to lead to better ideas, more interesting ideas, better for the sport, right? Better for the connection well, between I, the analytics yeah, groups and the people and the teams. Don't underestimate that because one of the things that we've seen with this data bowl is the relationships and the, the analysts that go to teams, but now with this new branch, you can start seeing coaches getting kind of pulled in or having their eyes opened or getting curious because of their experience with this. It's really, really just fantastic. Okay. More on that down the road because the combine is just coming up. But Ron, before we let you go, got to give us a little something on actual sports happening on fields of play or at least in practice facilities. Your Twitter feed, which we should say is at, I think it's stat underscore Ron at stat underscore Ron. Is that right? Great Twitter follow. Fantastic Twitter follow. Um, and it's been a bit of a screed lately on the Steelers QB. Do I have that right? What's going on there? What's got you so spun up? I, 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 I you know, I had the realization this past year, really. I was optimistic going into the year, but I am just completely all out on Kenny Pickett. Uh, I should have realized that earlier. Uh, the funny thing, actually, was the CMU football coach, Ryan Larson. He's the one that told me at the beginning of the year, um, yeah, Kenny Pickett's not an NFL quarterback. So you should, you should adjust accordingly. And I agree with that sentiment a hundred percent right now. Uh, I mean, it's, if you think about like to be able to compete in the year of Mahomes 2024, you need a quarterback. All right. If you actually want to have a realistic shot at a Super Bowl run. So real you quick, can't let me stop win with a QB I, I, from I'm 2000. Gonna... Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. How many of those guys exist? How many do we think exist right now in the world? Probably yeah, employed that, by that's a good question. No, it, honestly, it's, it's, not it's now, less. Right, it's less than thirty-two. <laughs> right, so you're yeah. you're quoting the Carnegie Mellon coach saying he's not an NFL quarterback. There are lots of guys being paid as NFL quarterbacks who don't meet that threshold. I'm curious what yeah, you I, think I think Kenny Pickett's at the very bottom. I mean, if they, I mean, you saw with the Steelers at the end of the season where a, a person on the team that was a backup, Mason Rudolph just quickly elevated the team. So if I, if I think about what I want the Steelers to do for just a little bit of an upgrade next year, it's to start anybody else, but I, I don't think they're going to. What, what, Eric's going to jump in, but one real quick question on that, because I'm not following closely enough to know. Did, did Rudolph, was Rudolph just that much better than Pickett, or did he actually age well for the last two years? Because we saw him as a rookie, and then he kind of disappeared for a while, and he came back, and I'm like, I, didn't, I wrote that guy off. Has he actually gotten better? I mean, that, that's a good question that, I, you know, I don't think we know the answer to, right? Um, there's a chance he got better, but the number of just like Kenny Pickett statistics of just in terms of how bad he is, is so overwhelming. What's your, what's your favorite? What do you think's most, what's your most diagnostic, he most has, damning? The, 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 I think the worst is of quarterbacks in the history, like, or like it's in the last five, 50 years, right? Last 50 years with at least 500 attempts he is the bottom the last player in terms of like touchdown per attempt he has the lowest touchdown per attempt out of the qbs in the last 50 years it's astonishingly bad <laughs> i know it, it sounds bad are you sure it's not a team stat are you positive it's not a team stat because that sounds like a little a bit, bit like a team there. stat there, yeah there could be a bit of that there i i don't know i just i think of if I want to have optimism to actually like compete in a playoff run, he's nowhere near the level of a quarterback that you would, that we need to do okay. that. You could compete in a playoff one where something, someone like Kirk cousins, right? You don't need a Josh Allen to maybe compete, but they don't, they don't have that right now. So okay. let me ask you a question, Ron. I was thinking about this when I, when you mentioned uh, Kenny Pickett and the Steelers, are you cursed if you're a Steeler fan by in some sense, the, accomplishments with less of Mike Tomlin. Like you're always going to pick. Like I, I just looked this up as you, I'm sure yeah. you know, the Steelers draft 20th. Okay. Now, could they get a great quarterback at 20? Yeah, they could. They're not getting one of the top four or five quarterbacks because unless they trade up, everyone's going to. So in some sense, what is the prospects for a Steeler team? And I hate to say it, given I'm an empiricist, you know for the next 10 seasons, Mike Tomlin's going to have a mediocre winning record, and therefore you're not drafting in the top five, and therefore where are you? Yeah, th 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 yeah this is something I've thought about. It's, it's the curse of mediocrity in a way, or like slightly above it, because Tomlin somehow manages to win more games than expectation, right? And I think Eric Eager had 
a nice analysis where he actually picked up on like some effect of Tomlin, some of something, not necessarily. Yeah, we, had there, Eric, we had Eric on a, and he yeah, talked about that. Yeah. He's a great leader and can somehow inspire this group to win more than you would think. But they're always in that draft slot where they're not, they're not going to get Caleb Williams or Drake May, right? They're going to make, they could maybe draft a Bo Nix or a Michael Penix. And it's a question of, are those really the guys that are going to take the team to the next level? Or is the only actual path a trade, a free agent for an established veteran? Is that the only way? And I, I, I'll be honest with you, I am not a salary cap expert by any means. That is well beyond my head. And that's a huge hurdle, obviously, in that type of part of managing a roster like this. Uh, I will just add a caveat to well, all yeah. of the stuff I'm saying is this is very subjective right now by me. I have, I have a very yeah. personal, bad, subjective opinion about Kenny Pickett, and it really drives a lot of it. It's, it's, it's refreshing for someone as sophisticated as you just to be yelling emotionally about your team. I, uh, <laughs> it's endearing. It's but I, I can't let the, no, no, I can't let the conversation go without note, without observing, obviously that there are lots of starting quarterbacks in the NFL, some of whom are above that threshold of quote NFL quarterback that were not drafted in the first half of the first round. We could go through the numbers, but I mean, yeah. it, we don't have to. We don't have to look very hard. We have two of the four championship qualifying teams. I know off the bat. No, that one and that one. Uh, who did the Niners beat in the in the NFC? The uh, Lions. I mean, well, Jared okay. Goff is number one overall, but Brock two, Purdy. Two right, of the is, four. Two of the Brock four Purdy was the below. year of the picket draft, which just adds to the the horribleness of it all. Well, and. And obviously Jackson was taken at the bottom of the first round as well. So there, there are lots of examples. Now you, the probability is lower, but there are lots of examples. All right, Ron, we got to let you go. Um, we could do this for a long time. Thanks for making time for us. Before you go, tell our listeners a little bit about some of the programs you have and how they can get more of Carnegie Mellon's work on sports analytics. Yeah, so upcoming we have a, an application deadline for our summer undergrad research program. So it's a two-month program. Uh, I'm the director of, we've been running for a number of years now. For the theme of sports analytics, uh, students are able to connect with our, our partners in our network where they work on like a capstone uh, with people from teams. This has been people from the Astros, uh, Buffalo Sabres, the Pittsburgh Pirates, uh, a number of different teams where they, they work together and they get a great experience of working with real world data and also having a variety of uh, classes and whatnot on different topics. And it's, they, they receive a $4,000 stipend and have housing provided to them. So it's an awesome opportunity uh, for rising juniors and seniors. And they could check things out, stat.cmu.edu slash summer. And that'll take them to uh, information about, about our summer program. And they could always, people are very interested in just seeing what we have going on on uh, our Carnegie Mellon sports analytics uh, initiatives and, and collaborations. We have a uh, stat.cmu.edu slash CMSAC. And that'll be info of landing pages for our conference. That'll be upcoming in mid November, you know, early November, maybe late October, always, uh, always in the fall time. Awesome. All right. Lots of great stuff going on over there in Pittsburgh with Yurko and the crew at Carnegie Mellon. Ron, thanks for making time for us today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That has been another hour here on Wharton Moneyball, another full hour of sports analytics with the crew. This has been Katie Massey hosting this week with Eric Bradlow and Audie Weiner. Many thanks to Shane Jensen in absentia. He'll be back to Matty Datz, the boss man for Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man, and Kelly, the intern, doing great work for us, making the show happen. Appreciate you guys listening. Come back and join us next time. Until then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.